This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our focus, better understanding China. It is, to say the least, a very complicated relationship with tensions over issues including trade, the economy, human rights, and for the past year, COVID-19. It is also a top foreign policy priority for President Biden. This is what he recently told State Department employees. We have to ensure that the benefits of growth are shared broadly and equitably, not just by a few. We have to push back against the Chinese government's economic abuses and coercion that undercut the foundations of the international economic system. Everyone, everyone must play by the same rules. But will China play by those rules? Gotti Epstein is the China affairs editor for The Economist. He addresses the challenges facing the new administration while also offering his perspective on how the U.S. and the West reached this point with the Chinese government. He also offers this warning. If China decides in the next five years or or even further out that it wants to reincorporate Taiwan into the People's Republic uh, by force, that is the kind of challenge that is going to be, you know, transformative, uh, to say the least. Just ahead, more of our conversation with the China Affairs Editor for The Economist. My opening question, what do Americans need to know in order to best understand the political structure and the leadership of today's Chinese government? Well, what they need to understand about China under Xi Jinping uh, especially uh, and, uh, and about the Communist Party in general uh, is that, uh, especially in terms of how it relates with the rest of the world, uh, that they do view themselves in a sort of ideological struggle uh, with the West and with liberal democracies. Uh, and that kind of affects everything they do externally in terms of how they relate with multilateral institutions, how they relate bilaterally uh, with countries, uh, especially ones that try to call out China on questions of human rights. Uh, they uh, want to have a safe space, as it were, to practice their authoritarian uh, version of governance. And they uh, will externally uh they will go to great lengths uh, to try and secure that. Uh, that might look kind of irrational or counterproductive uh, from the perspective of some outsiders or from of some critics of the Communist Party. Uh, but uh, I think if you understand it from their perspective, they have a long-term view that uh, they are in a position of as a rising power with an increasingly strong economy with economic leverage over uh, especially lesser sized uh, economies and sort of middle powers, uh, whether it's in Asia regionally or around the world, uh, extending as far as Canada, Latin America, uh, they have a sense that they can dictate some terms and and sort of, uh, uh, I think, tilt uh, the multilateral system and the norms of the multilateral system uh, in its favor. That is, I think, their long-term goal. So that's an important thing to under, for Americans to understand is that uh, I think the Communist Party perceives itself as being in this struggle with the West. You mentioned how China looks at issues and events over a long range, over a period of many, many years. Let me get your reaction to what former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger said back in 2019 on that very issue. We are very pragmatic 
we deal with immediate problems. And we believe the solution of these problems will bring about a permanent stability. Chinese believe, in my estimation, that no problem ever gets finally solved, that every solution is an entry ticket to a new set of problems. And they therefore look at the evolution of a relationship rather than on its immediate uh, issues. That from two years ago, Gotti Epstein, as you hear that from the former Secretary of State, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I, I, I think his uh, uh, Kissinger's analysis gets at something about the Communist Party's uh, kind of inherent insecurity about its place in in a liberal world order. And I, I, I would I would sort of put it slightly differently. I think they are trying to make themselves uh, permanent changes to the global order and sort of the rules based global order. But they they want it to be uh, they want the rules to be defined more in their in their favor. Uh, and while that is not the case, as long as that is not the case, I do think the Communist Party will see sort of any short-term solution to any conflict uh, to be just that short-term because it's not enduring in terms of uh, them, the Communist Party and its leadership feeling protected uh, from the Western liberal view of of what is proper governance, of what is acceptable uh, governance over what China would perceive to be its own uh, domestic affairs, whether it's in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong. Uh, there is going to be continuing conflict over these kinds of issues. Uh, and that, as long as that's the case, uh, then I don't think the Communist Party will feel that there's a, a permanent solution to disputes. I think that's fair. Let's turn for a moment to the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. What do Americans need to know to really understand his style and his approach to China and the U.S.? I think the most important thing we can take from Xi Jinping's governance is how he has opened the eyes of the West to how the Communist Party really functions and what its long-term goals are, because he's articulated them very clearly. Uh, He uh, has also removed term limits for himself, so he's made himself uh, potentially president or general secretary for life. Uh, That uh, in itself was an eye-opener for many in the West. It sort of made clear that this is not a communist party or a government that is moving kind of towards any sort of uh, idea of liberal democracy or political reform. And I think that was clear to many before Xi Jinping came into power, but it really crystallized uh, the the challenge that China poses with the rest of the world, because here we have uh, the world's second largest economy that that in a previous generation of China watchers, many assumed would liberalize as it uh, traded more with the West, as it engaged with the international system. And Xi Jinping has made clear in, in speeches about the, the Chinese kind of option or model uh, that he sees the Communist Party's way of governing as a – he does see it as a model, I think, for – countries to follow uh, 
uh, in the next you know half century. And he certainly wants the international system, the international order, to accept the Communist Party for as it is. Uh, and he uh, will uh, go to any lengths, I think, to protect that vision for the Communist Party. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Gotti Epstein. He is the China Affairs Editor for The Economist in New York. Let's turn to the current administration, but I first want to go back to the previous administration, President Trump. How did he, how did the Trump administration view our relations with China? Right, and those are two different answers. Uh, Trump personally uh, had an affinity for Xi Jinping as he had for Vladimir Putin. He obviously had sort of attraction to authoritarian figures. And he praised Xi Jinping all the way up until really the beginning and the opening months of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, when he got you know, quite upset with China, I think for political reasons and, and really, and really turned in his attitude towards, towards the communist party. But under him, the administration had already shifted in attitude. And this was quite a striking departure, uh, from the Obama administration. Uh, there was really a um, a massive uh, across the government change in attitude about the, the kind of threat the Communist Party posed to American interests, uh, kind of upgrading it to a top-level national security threat. And this was something that influenced almost every part of the administration. Uh, from the Justice Department to the State Department to the National Security Council. Uh, And it was uh, uh, something that uh, really got the attention of the world. Uh, Now, Trump himself undermined um, some of that uh, kind of shift in attitude by occasionally praising Xi Jinping, uh, telling him, essentially giving him a green light, uh, as as, as in the words of John Bolton, um, in his memoir, uh, to go ahead and build the camps in Xinjiang, that it was the right thing to do, uh, essentially uh, not looking the other way when there was a crackdown in Hong Kong. Uh, so it wasn't a clear uh, kind of coherent strategy from the Trump administration, but there was a, a real effort under Trump uh, to kind of turn the ship of state uh, kind of towards the idea of confronting China. Uh, And that was very important. Now, the one thing that Trump led that was clearly a confrontation with China was a trade war. Um, I would say that that wasn't really a strategic move. Um, It was more born of uh, Trump's, you know, rather kind of simplistic view of how trade works. And I think the tariffs uh, that he imposed reflect that. But uh, and, and, and in fact, I would say the trade war itself actually became somewhat of an obstacle to the Trump administration taking a coherent strategy uh, towards the quote unquote China threat because uh, Trump himself didn't want to take certain actions against China and delayed uh, certain kind of uh, sanctions and other moves against China because he didn't want to jeopardize uh, trade negotiations, negotiations to sort of try and end the trade war or to get at least a first phase settlement. So it was it was actually quite messy because of the difference between Trump, who's not a China hawk personally, except on trade, uh, and the rest of his administration, who had a very, very different view. 
And of course, we're now just a month and a half into the new administration. This is from a recent NBC News interview, Secretary of State Tony Blinken telling Andrea Mitchell some of the concerns, some of the threats he sees from China. There's no doubt that, that China poses the most significant challenge to us of any other country, but it's a complicated one. There are adversarial aspects to the relationship. There's certainly competitive ones, and there's still some cooperative ones too. But whether we're dealing with any of those aspects of the relationship, we have to be able to approach China from a position of strength, not weakness. And that strength, I think, comes from having strong alliances, something China does not have, actually engaging in the world and showing up in these international institutions, because when we pull back, China fills in, and then they're the ones writing the rules and setting the norms of these institutions, standing up for our values uh, when China's challenging them, including in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs or democracy in, in Hong Kong, uh, making sure that our military is postured so that it can deter Chinese aggression, and investing in our own people so that they can fully compete. But the good news about each of these uh, is that they're fully within our control. And in many ways, the challenge posed by China is as much about some of our own self-inflicted weaknesses as it is about China's emerging strength. But we can, we can address those weaknesses. We can actually build back better in this area, too, when it comes to stronger alliances, when it comes to engaging in the world, standing up for our values, investing in our people, making sure our military is properly postured. That from the new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and Gaudi Epstein, some of the issues you just touched on a moment ago. But I want to pick up on the one point that he made, that when the U.S. pulls back, China fills in. Can you elaborate? Right. So under under the Trump administration, one of the kind of complaints, and this this probably dates back in some way, in some cases, to the Obama administration as well, uh, that uh, the U.S., uh, while talking tough about China under Trump, wasn't necessarily there for countries that are in the middle that are caught in the middle between between China and the U.S. You know, wasn't offering an alternative option, whether it's you know infrastructure funding or uh, you know l- low uh, low interest loans for particular projects uh, or investing in multilateral alliances. I mean, certainly, Trump was withdrawing from uh, from multilateral. Uh, institutions uh, during during the same time that they were calling out the China threat in in Asia and in Europe. So they're asking uh, allies to take actions against China, like, for instance, keeping Huawei out of their networks. Uh, but there was at least a perception that there wasn't much on offer uh, instead. And I think that is where uh, the Biden administration has an opportunity. They're going to have some credibility that they really want to work with allies. There's clearly message of that uh, going dating back to the campaign. Uh, they are in almost every readout you see of a call between uh, the Secretary of State or Biden and foreign leaders. Uh, you see uh, mentions of China in almost every region in the world. You know that China always comes up. You know, just the other day, uh, Joe Biden had his had a bilateral with Justin Trudeau and. Uh, and he brought up uh, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, who are being held essentially as hostages in China in retaliation for the detention of a senior Huawei executive uh, in Canada who is, you know, in, in the sort of process of extradition to the U.S. And Joe Biden said, you know, they have to be released. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how uh, the Biden administration goes about what would go about trying to get that done, but it shows that it's a priority for them. And that kind of speaking up for allies 
uh, is something that was missing uh, from from Trump's messaging. Uh, and you got often quite the opposite from Trump, undermining allies, uh, going to uh, going, getting into tiffs with Canada, with Europe over trade. Uh, and you're getting a, quite a different um, different voice, a different attitude uh, and a different expression of principles uh, under Joe Biden. And I think that could be helpful in building building alliances and building multilateral trade blocks. Uh, that will be, I think, necessary if you want to have an, a, a cohesive strategy to counter China. So let me take that just one step further. In regards to the Biden administration's doctrine, if you want to put it that way, towards China, if you were to put it in a word or a phrase, what is it six weeks into this new administration? It would be that to have an effective strategy in dealing with China, you need to invest in alliances abroad and you have to invest in yourself at home. So to that point, earlier this month in the Oval Office, President Biden was asked about China. This is what he said. Uh, Last night, I was uh, I was on the phone for two straight hours with Xi Jinping. And uh, you all know as well as I do, these folks. uh, And it was a good conversation. I know him well. We spent a lot of time together over the uh, uh, over the years I was vice president. And um, but, uh, you know, they're going to, we don't get moving, they're going to eat our lunch. Uh, they have a major, major new in- initiatives on rail, and they already have rail that goes 225 miles an hour with, with ease. They're working, they're working very hard to do what I think we're going to have to do. And I think the uh, automobile industry is already there, and so is labor. They're going to, they're working very hard to try to move in a position where they end up being the source of, uh, of uh, a new way in which to power automobiles, uh, <laughs> um, which would, they're, they're going to invest a lot of money. They're investing billions of dollars in dealing with a whole range of issues that relate to transportation, the environment, and a whole range of other things. So we just have to step up. That from President Biden. So what does America need to do? And from your standpoint, what is China doing right now? Well, a key issue that's coming up is what to do in a world where America and China are increasingly decoupled. Uh, and that gets to kind of critical points in supply chain, semiconductors, rare earths. Uh, and this has just come up in both countries. You know, within, in, within China, there is talk about looking at whether to restrict, uh, you know, certain, certain types of exports, perhaps of rare earths. Uh, you're, you're starting to hear that sort of talk bubble up. Uh, and in, and the Biden administration as well is taking a look at what they need to do to be kind of strategically independent long term, as, as independent as possible uh, of China in terms of supply chains, uh, and including in those key areas. And that is something so what the, the Biden administration is knows that that kind of uh, that kind of world is coming where they have to uh, secure supply chain, uh, kind of key components of the supply chain that right now uh, are very much reliant on China and try and, you know, move away from a, from a dependency on China. That takes years and years to do. And uh, it's not clear uh, whether there will be the political will as well in Congress uh, to do the investments that might be required to get there. I mean, it's going to take some some spending. And I think uh, it's unclear right now whether in the kind of polarized environment we have in Washington uh, that you'll get that kind of commitment 
you know, to, to infrastructure spending, to to investing in your kind of economic kind of resiliency. You have been quoted recently and tweeting recently with regard to uh, what the Chinese people can and cannot see along social media, including uh, Clubhouse, which is really one of the fastest growing social networking sites uh, that was briefly available in China. Just give us a sense of what's happening. What can people get? What do they have access to? What is being restricted? Right. So for over a decade now, pretty much almost any Western social media giant that you can think of is, has been banned in China. So you can, you're not able to uh, access it. Your average Chinese internet user is not able to access it without the use of some sort of special tool like uh, you know VPN. So that, that means Facebook, Twitter, you're, you're not on those in China generally. You're on Chinese equivalents. Um, you're, on, um, you're on WeChat, uh, you're on Weibo uh, and other you know, Chinese social media. Uh, which is a very vibrant space uh, domestically, but is essentially a, a Chinese internet. You know, it's its own it's its own beast, and so that was inevitably going to be the case with Clubhouse as well. I mean, of course, the reason they block um, all of these social media, and that includes YouTube, is they do not want you know uncensored information uh, permeating uh, Chinese society and internet culture, and so they uh, they block all of that. They 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 heavily censor their own internet. Uh, and something like Clubhouse, which is uncensored, uh, was going, was having in the first few days of this sort of high growth period uh, in Chinese users, uh, users of, of Clubhouse, uh, which was a couple weeks ago. Uh, they were having discussions about things like um, Taiwan and China on both sides of the strait. Uh, you had where you had Taiwanese and people in Beijing. Uh, in Shanghai and elsewhere, talking to each other in a way that they had not done on any other platform, uh, and it was, you know, it's kind of fascinating. And then, and then the next day after that clubhouse discussion, there was a uh, discussion that was titled "Does Xinjiang Have Concentration Camps?" titled in Chinese, and that's of course something that you you wouldn't see on on Chinese social media. And it was a an open discussion about these issues that is just unthinkable uh, within the Chinese kind of social media space. Now that was destined that happened on a weekend. You know, that discussion was on a Saturday that was destined to, uh, to be shut down. And my only theory about why it took until Monday is that it was on the weekend and they needed to, you know, get the decision up the chain of command to block it. And they did block uh, clubhouse. And what you're seeing now is these discussions are still going on uh, on clubhouse. And uh, as is, as is almost inevitable on any social media platform, including outside of China and especially outside of China, you are now seeing people who are sort of pro uh, pro communist party uh, accounts uh, get into these rooms and and spread the communist party line on Xinjiang or on Hong Kong. Uh, and so, I think in the initial days uh, of this happening, of this kind of this little kind of spring that there was. On Clubhouse, uh, there was not that kind of coordinated activity, uh, and it took a little time for uh, for the Communist Party to catch up. But uh, they are really engaged in an information war uh, on any platform, and so they were going to be going to eventually be prepared for Clubhouse too. And I think what you'll see within China is you'll know, you'll see copy copycats of Clubhouse. You'll see um, audio uh, platforms take off within China. Uh, that are you know more tightly controlled uh, 
at the same time. So you'll have uh, kind of information uh, battles going on um, on Clubhouse, on Twitter, on Facebook, as they have been uh, outside of China. And then within China, you'll have a more kind of curated, uh, kind of tolerable to the Communist Party forms of these kinds of discussions. Well, you won't really have discussions of Uyghurs except for the party line within China, but, uh, but you get my meaning. Our conversation with Gaudi Epstein, he is the China Affairs Editor for The Economist. There's also the issue of claims that China is stealing intellectual property from the West, including the U.S. I want to get your reaction. This is what Lady Thatcher, after leaving as the British Prime Minister, said to a a global audience on that issue of China and intellectual property. In other words, my friends, if China is to benefit to the fullest extent from the rising tide of Asia's prosperity... She will need to go further and faster in releasing market forces and creating a dependable framework for business. Your response to what she was saying? Well, I think the the updated version of that concern, um, and it is a real concern, is that uh, China is engaged, the Communist Party is engaged in in trying to kind of siphon information uh, from, uh, you know, advanced research, you know, defense from defense companies, defense contractors. Uh, that's been going on for years, and that's also been behind a lot of the uh, the hacking that uh, we were hearing about going back. You know, almost a decade. Uh, it kind of became a uh, a sort of signal issue at the end of the second Obama term, and they had a, an agreement between the Obama administration and and Xi Jinping to sort of have a um, a, a ceasefire on kind of commercial. Uh, hacking like that, but uh, quote unquote state sponsored uh, commercial hacking. Um, it's it's almost certainly continuing, uh, and uh, and you know the the threat of of China stealing uh, stealing advanced research is what's behind uh, the China initiative that the Justice Department started under Trump, which was to kind of go after uh, scientists who have secretly engaged in contracts uh, back in with Chinese universities uh, while they are taking money from NIH or uh, the Energy Department uh, for advanced research um, in all sorts of fields from, you know, from AI to, to cancer research. And uh, that initiative has come under a lot of fire for uh, racial profiling. A, a bunch of these professors are ethnically Chinese, a bunch of these researchers, graduate students, uh, are ethnically Chinese, and it's not clear in some cases uh, how much of a you know national security nexus there is in their cases. Um, so that, but that kind of fear um, and the belief that China is trying to steal all sorts of technology uh, is what's behind uh, that kind of initiative. And it's it's a question under Biden, who's one of his early executive orders was um, kind of a, to address this issue of. Uh, the potential for uh, racism uh, in in these kinds of efforts is um, it's a big question how how these uh, prosecutions uh, and these investigations will proceed under the Biden administration and whether they'll be kind of pulled back a little bit, be more measured. Uh, that to me remains unclear how that's going to play out. So let me conclude with this point, trying to get a sense of where our relationship has been with China and where it's heading in the future. I want to go back 
nearly 50 years ago. When then-President Richard Nixon announced a breakthrough, U.S. relations with China, he made a historic visit in February of 1972, and during that five-day trip in Beijing, he said this. As you said in your toast, the Chinese people are a great people. The American people are a great people. If our two peoples are enemies... The future of this world we share together is dark indeed. But if we can find common ground to work together, the chance for world peace is immeasurably increased. In the spirit of frankness, which I hope will characterize our talks this week, let us recognize at the outset these points. We have, at times in the past, been enemies. We have great differences today. What brings us together is that we have common interests which transcend those differences. As we discuss our differences, neither of us will compromise our principles. But while we cannot close the gulf between us, we can try to bridge it so that we may be able to talk across it. And so let us, in these next five days, start a long march together, not in lockstep, but on different roads leading to the same goal. The goal of building a world structure of peace and justice in which all may stand together with equal dignity. That from February 21st, 1972, President Richard Nixon on day one of his trip to China. He was toasting the Chinese Premier Chou Enlai. And Gotti Epstein, as you hear that, give us a sense of how our relationship has evolved over the last 50 years or so, and more significantly, where you see it heading in the future? Well, the story of the U.S.-China relationship is really, since Nixon, is really one of, of, of different phases. And as long as the international system worked in China's favor, and as long as China wasn't interested in having uh, an assertive role to play in international relations, that was going to be fine. The U.S.-China relationship uh, was able to sort of develop uh, and trade expanded and exchanges uh, expanded, uh, and there was, uh, you know, a chance for the two countries to sort of march in lockstep uh, in on different paths, as, as President Nixon put it. Uh, but really, since 1989, it should have become clear that they weren't heading towards the same goal. And under Xi Jinping, as China has become much more assertive internationally, that's made the challenge of U.S.-China relations um, all the more complex. Uh, and when you have China becoming the second largest economy at the same time, that only just adds a layer to the challenge that just didn't even exist in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So you have a country that, and a system in the Communist Party that plans to be around for decades, that is not on its last dying legs, uh, that is not going to liberalize uh, as uh, it engages more with the world, and quite the opposite. 
uh, and you have America trying to sort of reckon with that, uh, it's it's a it's a challenge unlike uh, any uh, that actually the world has has faced before. To have such a strong authoritarian power in a liberal international order, it's uh, it's a vexing challenge uh, for the United States. And I think going forward, you know, I think the Biden administration's emphasis on allies is is wise. But even that is going to be challenging because every country has their own interests, their own bottom line uh, in dealing with China. And uh, some are much more vulnerable individually versus China. Almost all are much more vulnerable individually uh, dealing with China uh, and will be reluctant, I think, to take as hard a line on some issues as America. Uh, It will be easier to do so the more that uh, countries work together. But of course, the larger your group of countries, your group of allies is, also the harder it is to agree on exactly what your agenda is. And I think that is really the big lift that the Biden administration has uh, in the next year or two, especially, is building alliances, but also figuring out what groups of countries can agree on what priorities. And then how do you work together to counter the, uh, the threat that China poses? And then one last thought on this. I think, you know, the, it's, it's, it's all well and good to say that both countries uh, can kind of march along on their own paths. But when you have uh, China becoming kind of militarily aggressive in its region, uh, you might be putting that to the test quite soon in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Uh, and if, you know, I'm thinking of Taiwan here, which actually is a nexus with uh, some of the issues I talked about earlier, like semiconductors. Uh, if if China decides in the next five years or or even further out that it wants to reincorporate Taiwan into the People's Republic uh, by force, that is the kind of challenge that um, is going to be, uh, you know, transformative uh, to say the least in geopolitics, and it's it could lead to. Uh, a military confrontation between the U.S. and China, and it's probably the most likely vector for a military confrontation between the U.S. and China. I personally don't think it's going to happen, you know, next year. Uh, but I do think that Xi Jinping has that ambition. Uh, he's going to be around, I think, a long time, so he doesn't have to do it um, right away. But I do think he has Taiwan in his sights, and I think that is actually maybe the biggest geostrategic risk uh, that is presented in the U.S.-China relationship today. You put a lot on the table in that answer, so let me just very quickly follow up with what advice you would give to President Biden, to his national security team, to his new Secretary of State, in dealing with all of these geopolitical and trade issues and potential military issues with China. What advice would you give them? Well, I think the Biden administration has has the right framework for thinking about China, and I think I think they've articulated it quite well, that China poses a sort of uniquely complex challenge uh, and threat. I think if I were to stress one uh, part of their strategy that I would advise them to focus on most intently, it's to to remember that as much of a challenge as China poses to the United States, it is an even sort of scarier, more vexing challenge to to lesser powers, which is pretty much every other country in the world, to middle powers, to smaller countries. And that to the degree that America can come to the aid of countries in the middle, uh, not just allies, 
but countries that are sort of uh, where there's everything to play for between China and the U.S., whether it's in Africa or Latin America, uh, that if if America brings a sort of uh, sharp laser-like focus uh, to the question of how China is influencing uh, their politics, uh, their economic relationships, and how America can be of help, I think that could be an important long-term sort of salve for the the China question of the 21st century. Gotti Epstein is the China Affairs Editor for The Economist. He is joining us from New York. We thank you for your time and your perspective. It was great to be with you. And a reminder, be sure to follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.